Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Welcome everybody to Radio Gag, the weekly Gays Against Guns show. My name is Paul Rowley and I'm your host for today's show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how we are working together to end the American gun violence epidemic. This week, Fear of the Black Boat, Two Coups, 1898-2021. And in another week where African-American families yet again bury their young children, children shot and murdered by the American police force, we dig into history. This week in the studio, we have independent publisher and writer Wendy Jones, and together we will be discussing Wilmington's Lie, the murderous coup of 1898 and the rise of white supremacy, a book by Pulitzer Prize winner David Zucchino. But first we have our weekly In Memoriam, where we honour a life lost to gun violence. Josh Halsey was murdered on November 10th, 1898, around 2.30pm during the Wilmington coup by members of the Wilmington Light Infantry as he ran out of the back door of his house. He was 46 years old. What do we know about Josh Halsey? He was born around 1852 in Wilmington, North Carolina, to Simon and Satira Halsey. Joshua, 23 at the time, used his formal name on the license when he married 25-year-old Sally Franklin in 1875, three days before Christmas. Christmas weddings were common among African Americans. The house sparkled, relatives visited, and the pine wreath decorated the front door. Joshua and Sally stood before the Justice of the Peace with their witnesses, friends, and family for this celebration of their love. When Josh was killed, Mary was 20, Satira, named after Josh's mother, was 14, and Bessie was 8. Both Josh's race, small c in parenthesis for colored, and his occupation were listed in the phone book. He was a laborer. Maybe he was one of the black men who loaded ships at the dock with vegetables, fruits, cotton, or rice. Or maybe he worked on the outskirts of town, collecting rosin, pitch, and turpentine from pine trees. Maybe he and his family liked to watch the ships cleave the water as they sailed off to Boston or England with their cargo. Maybe he liked oysters, or played the fiddle, or made chairs for his house in his free time. Maybe he added his deep bass voice to Sally's alto when they sang Swing Low, Sweet Chariot in their church. What do we know about Josh Halsey? We know that he was taking a nap in his house at 812 North 6th Street when one of his children woke him up to say that the Wilmington Light Infantry were searching houses looking for the black man who had killed or shot at one of the members of the white mob. What do we know about Josh Halsey? He and Sally were not able to celebrate their 23rd wedding anniversary on December 22nd, 1898, because Josh Halsey was murdered on November 10th, around 2.30 p.m. during the Wilmington coup by members of the Wilmington Light Infantry as he ran out of the back door of his house. He was 46 years old. Thanks to Jean Graham for reading this week's In Memoriam. And special thanks to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Wilson Special Collections Library and their wonderful librarians for the research.
So this week's show is called Fear of the Black Vote, Two Coups, 1898, 2021. We are delighted to have in the studio this week, writer and independent publisher, Wendy Jones, who's also a Gays Against Guns member and owner of Ida Bell Publishing, which is idabellpublishing.com. Wendy, welcome to Radio Gag. I'm so glad to be here, Paul. It's great to have you here. So this, this I have to be honest, you know, I'd never heard of it. I mean, obviously, the recent coup in the capital is still very much in everybody's mind, but so interesting, the parallels that existed. So tell our listeners, what actually happened? What was this coup? Well, this is uh, Thursday, November 10th, 1898. And um, anywhere from 60 to 300 African-Americans were killed. And the point was to stop them from maintaining or regaining their shared political power with their white Republican allies. Remember, at this time, the Republicans are what we think of as the Democrats in terms of the way they treat Black people and vice versa, right? So they're switched. The Republicans are the allies of the Black people. Just keep that in your mind. It's called the Fusionist Movement. So they voted in coalition. Now, the fact that they say it's 60 to 300 means that they really don't know. Whenever you get round numbers, you know the people don't know what they're talking about. So they killed all these people. And it was like they didn't even bother to, to, to list them or to know how many people killed. I mean, this was what's so painful. And they were terrorizing all the, all the men because they were the voters at that time. Women couldn't vote. Uh, they killed most of them. They didn't kill the white allies. They just ran them out of town. So Wilmington, North Carolina, in 1898. What kind of town are we talking about? Well, you know, before the coup, it was a port city, you see, so it was hopping. There was a range of employment that attracted African-American populations because these people wanted to work. So if you were a laborer on the outskirts of town, there was turpentine, pitch, tar, rosin to be collected from the pine trees. At the docks, they got cotton and rice and tobacco, fruits and vegetables loaded on the ships. And if you were professional, there was employment for lawyers and doctors. There were factory workers dealing with the cotton and even a newspaper. Alexander Manley's Daily Record was the only daily African-American newspaper in America at the time. And Manley now was, he was a light-skinned black man, but he was so light, he looked white. That's gonna be important, that's why I said that. Now, one African-American man in town in Wilmington had so much wealth, he lent money out at interest to both races. And he, he had property. And there were black and white neighborhoods, but there were also mixed neighborhoods. And whites, they appeared before black magistrates in the court. They had mail delivered by black postal workers. A black county treasurer handed white county employees their pay and African-Americans had established two small banks. And that's not all. Half the police force was black. The keys to the county jail were held by a black jailer and the mayor was black. This is 1898, wow. Wilmington, North Carolina. And this is like not typical for most of the country at this point, right? No, no, no. And, and Wilmington was 60% African-American. Yeah, clearly, this was too much for the white Democrats. These black people are doing too well. Right. You, you can't have this. So basically, there, you've got this, on the surface, it seems like a very equitable society, which is, to me, unusual to think about because we've just had the Civil War within what, 30 yeah. years even, yeah. if even that. And, you know, you think about the Carolinas, they were some of the first states to leave the Union in the first place, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's yeah. not exactly as if we were coming from a place of racial tolerance. That's even. right. And so That's something right. extraordinary right. was happening in this town. Yeah, and I want, I want to make it clear. Black people, especially Black people in the South, knew how to act when they had something. They did not lord it over white people. They knew that white people resented them and were envious. So none of these people with power were abusing it because they wanted to keep their lives. I'm sure they were very deferential, even the professionals. I mean, they knew what these people were capable of. Absolutely, yeah. 
So in response to this success of African-Americans in Wilmington, this white mob emerges. What, what were the events that led up to that? Well, th these groups got together. One group is called the Secret Nine, another group of six, and they were leaders of the violence. See, there was resentment left over, of course, obviously from the Civil War. So they wanted to get back on top. They wanted these people to be back on the bottom so they could feel important. So this st they started planning the summer of 1898. And the plan was this. Okay, you prevent African-Americans from voting on election day, which is Tuesday, November 8th. Stuff the ballot boxes, prevent the fusion candidates, that's the white Republican allies and the black people who are running, from winning the election. And although this person wasn't a planner, he's one of the few names I will mention, Alfred Waddell. He was a long-winded, unemployed, former Confederate failed soldier and a bombastic speaker. He could wind people up. He could get people excited. So that was to get the rabble excited so that they would be involved in this violence. And of course, the poor whites, this is who they were. I may be ignorant. I may be poor. I may be illiterate, but at least I'm not Black. And so they had to make sure that Black people were lower than them. And the other people at the top, they just wanted to have all the, all the power again. All right. They weren't interested in sharing it with people they considered their inferiors. Now, on November 10th, that's the Thursday, the, the Black officials, their elections wouldn't come up for another two years. They were going to get rid of them, too, even though there was no election to get rid of them. They were just going to terrify them, kill them, uh, so they would never uh, vote again or seek political office. These are the Black people who were in office who weren't part of this election. So November 10th was the day that they were going to get rid of these other people. The, the governor of the state knew, President McKinley, who later was assassinated, had been warned by Black legislators who were going to Washington and telling them that, that violence was coming in November and nothing was done to prevent the planned coup. Now, McKinley was involved with, you know, trying to get the spoils of the Spanish War in, in 1898. He was trying to get Cuba and the Philippines and stuff. So he had other things to worry about and some Black people being killed. So he did nothing about it. The governor did nothing about it. But rumors circulated that Blacks were planning violence and whites needed to protect themselves. So just before the coup, guess who comes down? The journalists from the North, New York Times, the Washington Post, and other newspapers came to interview the leading citizens. Of course, these leading citizens were all white. And they told them they were planning to protect themselves from impending Black violence. Now, of course, if you think about it, why would the Blacks be violent? I mean, it makes no sense. But they wrote down what they were told, and that's the story that got all around the newspapers, except the Black newspapers. So that was how they were getting things together, getting the pot boiling. And then the Black newspaper, Manley's paper, what, what was his response to this? Okay, now, Alexander Manley, remember I mentioned before, uh, he ran the Daily Record. He was responding to an article written by a white woman who was saying that white men need to protect their women from rape by Black men. Now, of course, everybody knew this wasn't true, right? That's why he was so white, right? He was the offspring of one of their former governors, right? So, um, you know, he boldly printed the, the truth, though, that relationships between Black men and white women were consensual. It was white men who were raping Black women. So this, this really got people upset. The mob wanted to kill him right then. They said, no, 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 wait till November. So this wasn't something where some spark happened and people got violent. They said, no, 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 uh, they had to hold people back. So we're going to kill people in November. They said, OK, we'll wait till November to lynch him. There's a really important text actually about violence in the South called The Culture of Honor. I don't know if you ever read that. No, I haven't. It's written by a social psychologist called Nesbitt. Mm -hmm. And it, they start saying, like, why is the South more violent than the North in the United States? And what they talk about really is that this male violence specifically, this gendered violence, really ties into ownership of property. And then this, this idea of not having your reputation be besmirched, you know, 
being macho, being in charge, all that kind of thing. So you can imagine what it's like for these guys who, ha who are coming from this culture. First of all, they're not allowed to have slaves anymore. And now, you know, they're up in front of a black mm -hmm. judge. This whole psychology must have driven them crazy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this boils up. They want to get the people out of power. They're waiting till November. They want to stop people to, from voting, which, of course, has very contemporary re resonance, too. So what actually went down then with, with the coup itself? So on November 8th, half of Wilmington's Black voters stayed away from the polls. They'd been beaten, threatened with death. So half of them di didn't even vote. Most people went very early in the morning because uh, white and black, because they, they knew that they would be violent. The ballot boxes had been stuffed by the Democrats. Now, several counties, suspiciously enough, had vote totals that exceeded the number of eligible voters. So there was clearly a problem here, right? But uh, as a result, Republicans and the, and the black members of the fusionist group, that they lost the election because, you know, they'd stuffed the ballot box and half the people didn't vote. So you think, okay, that should have made them feel fine, right? But no. Right. They kind of got what they wanted, you think? Yeah. But starting in the summer, the guns that have been coming in, uh, people have been coming in uh, just before the election, white males uh, from all the nearby towns. They ran extra trains, I think. And one gun dealer in October and November alone sold 125 guns, which was four or five times his usual sales for those months. Now, you say, well, the black men could get guns. Now, most people had guns in those days for hunting and for personal use, but these people were getting new guns and more guns. And the white gun dealers, of course, would not sell the black men. Uh, the militia, we remember that from the, you know, from the amendment, right? The militia and other white men had guns, more guns and more powerful guns. Now they had shotguns. They had Winchester repeating rifles that could fire 16 rounds before being reloaded. That was almost like a machine gun, right? The Naval Reserves had a Hotchkiss gun that could fire 80 to 100 rounds a minute. With it, and it had an effective range of five miles. Whoa! A gun with a range of five miles. That's in the next town. I mean, and the Colt, the, the Wilmington Light Infantry, their gun could fire 420, 23 caliber bullets per minute. And I guess they were just testing it out. They fired it into a house and killed three black people. Wow. Now, obviously, these people weren't doing anything. They were in the house. No, they were like cooking their dinner or whatever. Yeah, right. They killed them in the house. I guess that, that was practice. Now, the, the black women with infants and children and the old people fled to the black cemetery for refuge, and they stayed there for days. So many died. This is in November. Even in, in the South, it's, it's cold and damp, right? Many died of exposure or starvation. So we don't even know what the, that's maybe the, one of the reasons the count is so high, even in the estimate, because these other people didn't die of gunshot wounds. They died of exposure from trying to get away from these people. Now, once again, we have, well, this has happened all through the lynching because I did a play on Ida B. Wells and they always took pictures of whatever they did, just like the coup, the recent coup. The successful coup members, they went to Manley's newspaper office and they burned it down, gleefully posed for a group picture in front of what remained of the burnt out building. They were looking for him, but what happened was Manley, uh, a few days before, had been warned about this and he was given, he had to have a password to get out of town. And a white ally said, you know, you're too intelligent to hang from a tree. So here's the password, get out of town. And he gave the password to the white person who was guarding the gates of the, of the town. And in fact, he said, where are you going? He said, oh, I'm, I have to go buy a horse at the next town. He says, well, we're looking for Manly. He said, well, if I see that scoundrel, I'll get him. You know, <laughs> so he escaped with his life. So after this coup, the Democrats, which, as we mentioned earlier, are kind of like 
for black folks, what the Republicans are like now, they get back into power. There are somewhere between 60 to 300 black folks who have lost their lives. And then the town, I mean, Wilmington was this bustling poor town. What happens to Wilmington? Well, the black population in Wilmington had been 60%. It went down to 20%. And Waddell, that man who helped rouse the white supremacists with his, you know, with his speeches, was illegally installed as the mayor in, in place of the rightfully elected black mayor. And in letters and coups and, and speeches after the coup, he bragged about killing black men, although he didn't use that term, black men. You can figure out what he used. And no blacks held local office in Wilmington, North Carolina from 1898 until 1972, almost a hundred years. And North Carolina's registered black voters went from 126,000 in 1896 to 6,100 in 1902. Uh, in 1908, George Henry White, who was a black man, represented North Carolina in the house, right, in, in DC. The next black person to represent North Carolina in the house was Eva Clayton in 1992. So from 1901 to 1992, there was no black representation for North Carolina in the house in Washington, DC. So again, almost a hundred years. And you know, there's just so many ways that this story resonates with what just happened in this country, you know. But the idea of, you know, like we call the show the fear of the black vote, because that's really what's going on here. It's like they do not want people to have representation. And that is shown up in those shocking statistics that you've just shared with us about how long the African-American community in North Carolina had no representation whatsoever. in Congress. Absolutely not. You know, almost 100, 100 years. 100 years. 100 you know, so. And meanwhile, you have Stacey Abrams and all those people down in Georgia trying to turn around what we can tell from this, like hundreds of years of suppression of black voters. Yeah, you know, Stacey Hay Abrams group in coalition with others, but I give her so much credit. Um, they, they registered 800,000 people who had never been registered before, almost a million people. Wow. And that election, that special election they had for the senators where they got the first Jewish uh, senator and the first black senator from Georgia, 100,000 people voted in that who had not voted in the presidential election. Even within that couple of months, yeah. That's right, that's right. And, and of course now they're trying to, you know, once again, steal the vote and there's so much we have to do. They want to restore the preclearance, you know, what happened when the, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. What they did was they took out the preclearance section. And that section was that if you were gonna change anything about an election, and you were on this list of, of states that had problems with, you know, voter, I call it theft because suppression is not strong enough. It's voter theft. Um, you had to submit that plan before the election. Now you can go ahead and make the change and then people can sue you after the election when it's too late. When it's too late. But the remedy is RBG said when, when this five to four decision went down, she said, look, the, the Congress, you can, you can change this. So the House and the Senate can put that strength back in. But you know, the problems we have with the Senate. So well, exactly, yeah, and and you know, the one thing that really struck me was there was that one African American police officer who's basically facing this white mob. Goodman. Goodman, thank you. That's his name, right? And he's trying to save the lives of the people who are trying to take the vote away from his community. That's right. The, the That's irony right. of it couldn't be more shocking. You know. That's right. That's right. That that is, is really ironic. And his name is Goodman. You know, That's Goodman. Right. You know. Eugene Goodman, I think that's his first name is Eugene, you know, and there's so many parallels here, you know, both insurrectionists 
groups were made up of ordinary people and leading citizens. You know, a lot of those people were failed lawyers and bankrupt realtors and things. They weren't just the, you know, people who were unemployed. They were, you know, these people who thought they should be on top and were not. Yeah. In both coups, there was open planning and nothing was done to prevent the violence. And, and, and a big lie was the, you know, the ostensible reason for both of these insurrections. African-American men were raping white women in the first, which is, you know, that threadbare lie as, as Ida B. Wells, you know, called it. And the stolen election in the second. So we had the big lie in both cases. And even the trivial facts match, you know, they, the red shirts, uh, in 1898 and the red baseball caps. It must be the color of blood. That's all I can think of that it could be. And in 1898, the, the white mob wanted successful men, Black men to once again become enslaved. They wanted them to be chattel. They wanted them to be things that they could do something to, right? In 2021, the Confederate flag was carried into the Capitol for the first time in the history of the country. So they want to go back. And of course, guns are at the center of the violence in both cases. You know, I went into my, my pocket constitution and I, I got the quote here, uh, the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, aside from the fact that, that the Supreme Court blatantly misinterpreted this, because it says well-regulated militia, it doesn't say I, as a private person, have a right to have a gun, mm -hmm. all right? But in neither coup were these men a well-regulated militia protecting the security of a free state. No, they were trying to topple the security of a free state. They certainly were not a militia. Now, as we've talked about, in both coups, the central operating principle is that the votes of Blacks and their allies are illegitimate. Now, in 2021, all the cities the former president protested you know, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Michigan, they're cities with large population of Blacks. And in Arizona and Nevada, they were First Nations people and Latinx people, right? So none of these people are legitimate. Their votes are not legitimate. These people all voted, the young people, the white allies, the people of color, all voted in coalition to elect President Biden. So this cannot stand, is what they're saying. Now, there are a lot of lessons here, but what I see here is that white supremacy is death to democracy. Yeah. The country becomes one where, you know, like black and brown people are a majority. White nationalists want to march back to a mythological past. Never existed, right? I think we need to, we need to march forward together into a difficult but hopeful future because if black citizenship exemplified by the right to vote is not upheld, the country as a whole suffers. We all suffer. That's why we haven't got universal health care. That's why we don't have, a, have infrastructure that works. All the things that everybody needs are being denied us because they're trying to hurt Black people. Well, they're hurting more white people than hurting Black people, right? And just think about all the people who were stopped from becoming the scientists, the physicists, the, the doctor, the lawyer, the, you know, all these people. What could they have done for our country? What could they have done for our lives? I think about that stuff all the time, you know, all the time, because because yeah. we, we, we destroyed people that it was like you have a you have a seed and instead of putting it in the ground and giving it fertilizer, you just throw it in the gutter. And that seed could have been a wonderful tree. You know, it could have been a wonderful oak or something. So now there is a well-known quote that, you know, people often use in this in this situation. I'm not going to say it because it's so obvious that people it's people just sort of say it in a rote way. So I think we should use another quote for a situation like this. Now, this is from James Baldwin. And I think it's gonna, it's gonna help us focus on realizing that we need to understand the truth of our history. And as Faulkner said, you know, the past isn't the past. It's just, it's, you know, people talk about the past as if it's over. The past is still with us, right? So here's the quote from Baldwin. 
not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So folks, that's about all we have time for this week. We will be back as we are every week, 2.30 p.m. right here on listener-sponsored WBAI. To find out more about getting involved with Gays Against Guns, you can find us online or via social media, Gays Against Guns NY on Facebook and Instagram, gaysagainstguns.net, or Gag No Guns on Twitter. You can also listen back to any of our previous shows on all major podcast platforms. Just search for Radio Gag Gays Against Guns. So thank you for listening. Thank you to Wendy for a fantastic show. And we'll be back next week. Take care, folks.